0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Thanks, worship team. Thank you, Jay. Rumi. <laughs> Former Rumi. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Matthews, and I'm a member of the preaching team here at Grace. And this morning, we're going to continue our series on enduring joy and looking at the book of Philippians, the New Testament letter of Paul. If you were here last week, you remember that we looked at chapter 1, verses 12 through the first part of 18. And Gabe talked to us about how we often face detours in our life, things that kind of derail our plans, take us off course from what we expected or hoped for. And we looked at this passage and how Paul, even though things were going very different than he had hoped for, he was able to still rejoice in the Lord. Um, and that was a great challenge to us. I, know, I don't know about you, but for me, throughout this week, I've been, been challenged to uh, view life that way. And then as we turn to this morning's passage, we're going to kind of see some of the same themes continue, the, the challenges of rejoicing in the Lord, no matter what the circumstances. Um, here in this passage that we'll look at this morning, there's the, the kind of famous verse, verse 21, that says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we're going to unpack what that means and see the, uh, the, the challenge that it is to us to, to think of that and to see Paul saying that and to ask ourselves honestly, can we really say that? Is it really true for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? A little bit about myself. Um, I have a tendency to get kind of a one-track mind about thing things. My parents can attest to that. My wife can attest to that. Uh, when I was a kid, what this would mean is if I saw a toy that I wanted um, in the catalog or on the, on the shelf at the store, I would think about it nonstop and talk about it nonstop. My, my son is kind of like this. Um, and I would do everything I could. I'd save my money and I'd plan for it and try to get that toy. That was, that was what kind of was the focus of my life as a grown-up as an adult or at least kind of a grown-up uh i'm not exactly the same as that but some of those same tendencies still um, are in my life i can get fixated on things Um, maybe it's something that i'm working on for work Uh, maybe it's trying to figure out my golf swing Uh, i'm a researcher i love to to research and so that means Uh, I can spend a lot of time trying to plan a family vacation or try to find the best deal on whatever it is I need to buy. Uh, A car car part, a book, uh, Eclipse glasses. um, (laughs) From a vendor approved by the American Astronomical Society, of course. But this can happen with more serious things in my life, too. Whether it's um, a relationship that's tense at the moment or a conversation I've had or a conversation I need to have, I can, that can kind of consume me and um, be all that I really think about. There are all kinds of things that can consume my thoughts, and what this means for me, if I'm not careful, is that that thing, whatever it is, becomes the focus of my whole life, becomes what life is all about. For Paul, all of life and death is about Christ. Paul's perspective challenges us to consider what really matters to us, what takes up our time and energy and thought and emotion, and ultimately what takes up our worship, what's the focus of our worship. This passage really talks about how the gospel of Christ is truly a matter of life and death. So let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, um, and it'll be up on the screen there for you too. We're going to start at the second half of verse 18, leaving off picking up where we left off last week and going through verse 26. It says this: Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. But will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your, joy, your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it speaks into our lives, and we ask that you would do what you need to do to soften our hearts and to make us receptive to what you have to say this morning. I pray that what what I say and what we all think and feel and how we respond would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing about this passage that we notice is that there's a switch from a focus on the present to a focus in the future. Paul has been rejoicing even in spite of his circumstances that Christ has proclaimed, and now he's gonna say, and I continue to rejoice. Not only did I rejoice and am I rejoicing now, but I will continue to rejoice. There's an emphasis on kind of the future hope that Paul anticipates in Christ. The joy of the gospel is for sure a, a present reality. That's a big part of what Paul is saying. But it's not just a fleeting thing that passes quickly. It's an enduring joy. It's, it's rooted, the gospel is rooted in a confident hope in what the future holds. And for Paul, in this passage, it's more specifically, it's a joyful hope in God's justice. For Paul, what he says here in verse 19 is that he knows that through their prayers and through the work of God's Holy Spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, he says. This word for deliverance here in verse 19, um, if you notice on your NIV uh, Bibles, there's a little footnote, and it says this could also be translated vindication or salvation. It's the same, verse, or same word we see in verse 28, just a little while later, uh, that's translated salvation, and then also in 2, 12, and 13 where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in you. I think what Paul has in mind here is more than just his release from prison when he talks about deliverance or salvation. Uh, in the next verses, he's going to present this dilemma between life in prison and death. And I think he sees death in prison as a real possibility. And if history is correct, we know that Paul did end up dying a brutal martyr's death eventually. And so Paul's confidence here in his deliverance or salvation is it's because of who God is. It's because of God's justice, not his own circumstances. No matter what happens for Paul he knows that ultimately he will be vindicated and God's justice will prevail. I think one thing that this passage does for us by way of relevance and application is it gives us this strong sense of confidence in God's eventual justice and his character. This can be a great encouragement and we can take real comfort in knowing that no matter what our life circumstances, no matter how unfair we're being treated or what kind of trials we're going through, God's justice will ultimately prevail in the end. And we see this kind of theme all through Scripture. We see all kinds of examples of people experiencing injustice and then trusting in God's justice. Job is one example that comes to mind. He's this righteous man. It says he's blameless. Um, But he was experiencing trials that we couldn't even imagine. And on top of that, his his three friends, or so-called friends, are gathered around and continually kind of berating him and saying, this is all your fault. And yet, despite this injustice, and no matter how distraught Job is, he can still say, I have confidence in God's justice. In Job 13, 15, and 16, he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And then he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. In fact, this phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, this is the exact Same phrase that Paul uses. Paul's intentionally reminding us of Job here in verse 19 of Philippians 1. We also see it in the Psalms. Psalm 98 is a great praise psalm uh, of joy about God's justice. It says, Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. This high praise of God and this rejoicing psalm culminates in verse nine, which says this. This is the reason for all this joy and praise. He says, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people People's with equity. I think this is this is remarkable. I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of God's judgment, it's not necessarily a positive thing, or it's it's kind of a scary reality. Uh, but what the psalmist is saying here, and I think what Paul is saying is that we can take joy in God as our judge, in in His justice, and that's because be, through the death of Christ, we stand justified before this righteous judge, before God our Father. We also see in Jesus the ultimate example of experiencing injustice. The sinless, spotless lamb of God is mocked and beaten and crucified as a criminal. And yet, what, he's, what it says in Hebrews is that he endured the cross for the joy set before him because he knew with full confidence that God's justice would ultimately prevail. I think we can take great comfort in this idea of God's justice. And we can rejoice that even if life doesn't seem fair at this point, uh, whatever we're experiencing, we can know that whether in this life or the next, we will be vindicated and we will experience the goodness and the joy of God's coming kingdom and his coming justice. And so back to our chapter in Philippians in verse 20, It continues, and Paul says this, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted, whether by life or by death. This is his dilemma that he's facing, life or death. It's a life or death scenario. And for Paul, the crazy thing about it is that he sees this as a joyful dilemma, it's not a bad dilemma. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. Uh, other translations, instead of I'm torn between the two, say I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's almost like he's looking around at, his, at the walls of his cell or the pit that he's imprisoned in, and he's envisioned, envisioning those two options, life and death, closing in on him. It's kind of like, literally and figuratively, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. But from Paul's perspective, this isn't a dilemma between two terrible options. This is a dilemma between two crazy, or two very good options. And that's that's kind of the crazy paradox of this situation. Um, I was trying to think of an example, and I think... A negative example of a dilemma would be like when I was in China with Bob Maddox many several years ago on a mission trip, and our dinner options um, were goat intestines on the one hand and super, super spicy noodles on the other hand. I mean like sweaty face, can't drink enough water, kind of spicy. Uh, so that's a negative dilemma. That's often, I think, what we think of when we think of a dilemma. We ended up having both at some point on the trip. But instead of like that, it's more like the other day when our family was at salt and straw and my kids were wrestling and toiling over the decision between chocolate gooey brownie and cinnamon snickerdoodle-flavored ice cream. It's more like that for Paul. It's not a lose-lose situation. It's a win-win. And that's what he means when he says this well-known statement, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The second part of this statement, to die is gain, this is what Charles Spurgeon calls one of the great paradoxes or one of the great riddles of the gospel. Death is the worst thing in the world. It was the curse of the first sin in the garden and it's the last enemy that will be defeated. But somehow here, Paul is calling it gain, a good thing, an advantage. Paul's perspective here, it offers us a challenge to see life this way. And to live this way in light of the reality of death. To say to die is gain means we value Jesus even more than life itself. And we long to be with him. That's what Paul is seeing and saying. And that's the example that he's giving to us. And I think what it challenges us to ask is, is this true in my life? Can I really say to die is gain? Do I value Christ more than life itself? And do I live longing to be with him in his presence? We've all experienced death to some degree or another, in some way or another, and it's a terrible and heartbreaking reality of our broken world, and what I don't want you to hear me or Paul saying is that we shouldn't be saddened by death. We, we should be saddened by death, it's terrible. At the same time though, there's a joy in the good news of Jesus that runs so deep it can't be overwhelmed by the reality, the horrible reality of death. Even if we're faced with death, even if we have to think about it, or someone, a loved one is facing death, we, have, we can take great comfort and joy in the hope that Jesus died and rose again and defeated death. And we have eternal life through faith in him that puts death into perspective. Again though, I wanna be clear on what this is not saying. What this is not saying, Paul's perspective, is not kind of a selfish, escapist attitude towards death. He had been beaten and imprisoned, and if there was anyone who would be justified in saying, I want to kind of check out of this life, it would be Paul. But that's not what he's saying. He says, I do desire to depart, yes, but his desire to depart is not so he can escape. His desire to depart is so that he can be with the one he loves, the one he longs for. For Paul, everything else fades into the background. Above all else, he wants Christ. And so when we think of the gospel, we think of the wonderful news that it is, Uh, even in the darkness of death, we can have hope and joy because of who Jesus is and because of what God has done for us in Christ through his death and resurrection to new life so that we can have eternal life with him. But on the other hand, the gospel, it is something that gives us joy when we think about death, but it's also something that applies now to life. It's good news for both death and life. And that's where we get to the other part of verse 21, where it says, for me to live is Christ. And this is, the, this is what we'll focus on the rest of our time this morning, is what what does that really mean, to live is Christ? I think... Uh, one thing that I think about is when you get something stuck in your head and you just can't stop thinking about it, like a song or uh, something you're reading or a show you've watched or something. For us in our family, we've been watching the Netflix show called The Hunt. Anyone seen The Hunt? Oh man, you guys are missing out. It's, a, it's an animal show, a nature show, a family show. It's about predators and hunting prey, all kinds of predators all over the world. Uh, and we've, we've loved it, but it's been kind of coming up in all sorts of conversations. The other day, I, was, uh, I had the battery-powered fly swatter, and I'm going after a fly, and I couldn't help but imagine this British accent narrating the, the event, talking about how I was stalking my prey and using my, my instincts as a skillful fly-zapping hunter, and the, the helpless predator has no chance of survival. Uh, But I think that's kind of how it is, what Paul is talking about. He's constantly thinking about and talking about Christ and about the gospel, and this is why he can say, for me to live is Christ. This is, as, as Jay has been saying, this isn't about just adding a little bit of Jesus to our life. This is that Christ is our life. And I think the challenge here is for us to make that more of a reality, so that the gospel of Christ infiltrates everything about our life so that what we think and do and say and feel is about Christ, and it impacts us like water seeping into a bone-dry riverbed after the spring rain or like a vine that's climbing up a tree or a trellis and it's kind of working its way into every nook and cranny and wrapping its way around every branch. It's, it's what life becomes all about. But I think we have to ask ourselves, I know I do, is this true? Is this how it really is for me? When it comes down to it, can I honestly say to live is Christ for me? Or if I look at my life, is it maybe more accurate to say to live is my financial security? Or maybe to live is recognition. Maybe you're finding your identity in what other people think of you. Or what about Something like to live is sports, or to live is fishing, or to live is golf, or maybe to live is shopping. Are those the things that consume your thought and your your time? Or maybe it's more accurate to say to live is family, to live is marriage, to live is my job, my career, or to live is ministry even. Have I covered enough ground to make everyone a little bit uncomfortable? This passage definitely has made me squirm this week and really kind of think about, what are the things in my life that are replacing the Lord at the center? And then I think we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like? How do we live this kind of Christ-centered life? I think in general, one thing we could say is that to live as Christ means we reorient, means our life is reoriented to the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he's done for us shapes our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our our conversations. Jesus is the king who came and died and rose again for our salvation. And to grasp this good news of Jesus is to live a life of worship in response to what he's done for us and who he is. To get a little bit more specific, I think to live as Christ means we can trust God in all circumstances. He's good, his plan is good, and we can trust in that. Uh, the, the gospel reminds us that uh, the focal point of all of the Bible and all of human history is God sending his son Jesus to live and die and raise again and, re- and reign as king. That reality should give us great hope in knowing that God's plan will come to fruition and he, will, he is worthy of our trust. To live as Christ also means that we are honest about our sin, It means we're willing to see the areas of sin in our own lives and call them what they are and turn from them, knowing that he died for those very sins. It also means being clear about the sin in the world around us, speaking truth in love no matter what the cultural or political consequences. The truth of the Bible should guide our thinking on things like Sexuality and gender, whether we're talking about same-sex marriage or sleeping around before marriage. We also must be clear to say that hate of any kind is opposite to the love of God. More specifically, and this is something that the preaching team and the elders have talked about this week and have agreed that it is important to mention, we have to be clear to say that racism is sin. In Virginia, last week, there were people who called themselves white nationalists or white supremacists, wearing swastikas, carrying torches, chanting the Nazi chant, blood and soil. One of them drove his car into a crowd of protesters, killing one and injuring several others. This is sinful, hateful evil. And we have to be clear about that. We're all created in God's image, the idea that one race is better than another is contrary to God's love for all humankind displayed at the cross of Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus undoing racial divisions, tearing down the walls of hostility. And so hate against another race or another group of people is ultimately hate against God. In Titus 3, it says that Jesus and only Jesus saves us from the sins of malice and hate. So we must be clear to name sin as sin. And this doesn't mean that we have to be shouting about it constantly or posting nonstop on Facebook. But I think we should be willing to take a clear stance in a loving and wise and truthful way. And it is true that almost all issues, including the issues that we see in the news today, have at least two different sides. Uh, We do need to be balanced and wise about how we think about things. But I think when someone says something like, racism is sin, we need to be hesitant not to respond too quickly by saying, yeah, but what about the other side? I think what this can do is minimize the reality of that sin, and, and it can cloud and kind of blur the clarity of what we're talking about. We also need to guard against letting our politics get in the way of being clear about sin whether it has to do with racism or something like sexuality or abortion. If our political commitments make us hesitant to be clear about what sin is, then I think it's a time that we should probably check our priorities. I think we need to come back again and again to asking ourselves, which is more true for me to say to live as Christ or to live as being a Republican or a Democrat or even an American. The gospel of Christ Challenges us to be clear about the sin in our world and the sin in our own hearts and to trust in his finished work on the cross as the only ultimate remedy for all sin. To live as Christ also means we labor for others. As Paul says in verse 22, he labors fruitfully for their for their sake. This is kind of like what we do with VBS and Community Care Day when we seek to spread the love of Jesus and respond to the love that he's showed us and make his kingdom more a reality on earth as it is in heaven. To live as Christ means loving sacrificially like Jesus did when he came and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to be obedient to death on the cross. And finally, to live as Christ means we find our identity in him. We don't need to be crippled by fear of what others think or by finding our significance and status or through our accomplishment or failures, those things don't define us as followers of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Once we put our faith in Jesus, our Savior and King, we become someone new. Our identity has been forever changed from this point forward, and there's great joy in that truth, the truth of to live as Christ. In just a minute here, we're gonna be watching some baptisms and celebrating what baptism is. Um, And that's one thing that baptism is, is it's a a way to signify new creation. Romans 6 says this, it says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Baptism is a tangible reminder of what's true and what's true is that jesus died and rose again when this when someone goes down into the water and then is lifted back up again out of the water this is kind of a visual reenactment of jesus death burial and resurrection and baptism also signifies cleansing a wiping away of the old sinful life and it in a beginning of a new life in christ a new identity of holiness and righteousness So for those who are being baptized today, and as we all kind of participate in it, this is a, baptism is a tangible symbol and a reminder of what it means to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the newness of life that we have in you. We thank you for your word and um, just the, the true reality of the cross and uh, the person and work of, of Jesus. We pray that more and more that would be a reality in our life, that we can truly say to live as Christ and to die as gain. We confess that that's not the case often in our lives. And now we celebrate and we rejoice that we can uh, have kind of a visual reminder of what you've done for us in the lives in the baptisms of these, these individuals now. In Jesus' name, amen.